I'm impressed. You guys cleared out the broccoli. There's a ton of nice filet steak, but zero broccoli. All of your mothers would be so proud of you guys today. <laughs> I didn't even get any broccoli. That's how fast it went. <laughs> and there's a whole ton of desserts left. So this is, yes, must have, I would say New Year's resolutions, but it's a little late in the year for that. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. <clears throat> We're going to have long life in this Bible study. Well, we are getting started. Uh, we're going to start just a couple minutes early, um, <clears throat> but we may end a couple of minutes early, so that's okay. We are in Joshua chapter 8 this week. Now, last week, Joshua chapter 7 was the first attempt that Israel made to go up against the city called the Ruin, Ai. And... Um, I was a small garrison next to a place called Bethel, so the two were kind of shared resources. But remember, if you're new to the Joshua study, we're in this section of Israel's conquest of the land of Canaan as God's judgment on the particular Canaanites. So he is sending them to drive out the Canaanites. And we've seen in previous years in this study, when we were in the Torah, as they were preparing for this moment, this event, we talked about how the purpose that God sent using language of drive out, destroy, wipe out, leave nothing alive, um, using this hyperbolic language, much like we say, you know, this football team destroyed this other football team. And we don't literally mean it, but what we mean is they thoroughly, thoroughly beat them. That's what's going on with Joshua because Joshua is written as an ancient Near East conquest account. And the type of language used is hyperbolic language found elsewhere in the ancient world in accounts like Joshua. And we know that that's the case because Joshua will talk about certain towns where it says, we left nothing that breathes alive. Man, woman, child, we put to the mouth of the sword. Blah, 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 blah. Then a few chapters later, it'll say, now the survivors of the town did such and such. So in the text itself, it lets us know that all doesn't always mean all. And the language of utter destruction from the text itself lets us know that it's hyperbolic battle language, that it's, it's exaggerated language. And that's part of the genre, part of the writing of the book of Joshua. So that's one of the things to keep in mind, especially if you're new to this study, because Joshua reads as a very, very violent book. Because it's an account of war. And war in the ancient Near East was very violent. One of the things you did in war was when you destroyed a city, you offered it as a sacrifice to your gods, as a thanksgiving for allowing victory. And that was called harem. And so hereming a city meant removing it from the use of human existence and dedicating it completely to the gods. And God would call Israel to harem certain Canaanite cities, but not all of them. And we don't know exactly why, but we know that He did it with some cities. So for instance, Jericho was, was harem. But even within hereming a city, we know that there are exceptions to that. Because we read a story about one of those exceptions. The woman named Rahab. 
She was an exception. So if Rahab was an exception, what that lets us know is in these other cities that get harumed, there could very well have been other exceptions as well. Because the point was not to wipe out a people, ethnic-wise, genocide. The point was to wipe out their religious identity. That's what God means by drive out the Canaanites. Every vestige of Canaanite fertility religion is what God was sending Joshua, Israel in to drive out and utterly destroy. So every cultic center, every high place, every area of child sacrifice or cult prostitution, all of these things, that's what God was concerned about wiping out. Not the people as people. The people as people, God would have loved for them to repent. In fact, He gave them 400 years hoping that they would repent. And we read about some of them that did repent right at the beginning of the account. Rahab and all who were in her household. So that is the primer that we have to look at the book through as we go through what becomes these violent chapters in the book. Last chapter then, interestingly, we saw what happens when Israel presumes that they are just like any other nation and they're carrying out war on their own terms. Joshua sent some spies to Ai and said, and they said, it's, it's peanuts. We can take this out, no problem. Just send a few elephants. Just send a few, Elif is the word that gets translated as thousand, but sometimes it means regiment or small group or large group, or sometimes it means thousand. Context determines it. I just use the word Elif to keep the ambiguity. So just think of group of fighting people. And the people, the spies said, just send a few Elif up against them. You know, like we, we don't even need to send the whole army. God wasn't consulted. That was just the plan that they came up with. So they did, and they were completely routed. And it turned out that they were routed because God was not in that. God had lifted His protection from Israel because unbeknownst to the rest of Israel, Achan, Achan, and his family had done exactly what God told Israel not to do when they went up against Jericho. And He had taken some of the stuff that was supposed to be cherem. And by taking the cherem into His own possession and hiding it in His own family tent, he and his family hiding this treasure, they made themselves harem before God. And so last chapter was God, Israel having to deal with that contamination in their midst. And it shows the effects of sin is sometimes in the Bible seen almost as, as disease, as contamination, as radioactivity um, that, that permeates, that has more of an effect than just the person. And they dealt harshly with it. There are times in God's history of His people where He deals harshly with sin. Very harsh. We compared it last week to the account of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. All they did was fib, fib a little bit, fudge the numbers on a field that they sold. The Holy Spirit struck them dead. That's a very harsh punishment, and it's one that God does not do very often. But at certain times, key moments in covenant history, God will be very stern and severe with His own people. And that's what we saw last chapter with Achan and his family. So now that that's been purged, that, that, that the harem has been removed from Israel's midst, God is saying now I can once again, you've restored the covenant. Remember this is all a covenant or stipulation relationship. You've restored the covenant relationship. I am now in your midst. Now it's time to, do, to take this city, I, and to do it right. So this is what it should have been all along, is what we read in chapter 8. 
which says, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army, not just three elephants like last time, but the whole army with you. Go up and attack Ai, for I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. If only Achan had waited. If only Achan had waited instead of taking the plunder from a city that was forbidden because he coveted it, his own words. If he had just waited until it was time to attack I, God says, with this one, you're not going to harem everything in it. You, you can take their livestock. You can, you can, they're going to be leftover goods when you've destroyed the garrison. Remember, these aren't cities like towns with little kids running around neighborhoods and things like that. These are military garrisons. This is war battle language. So after you've taken the fort is as good a way to translate city in all of these contexts as anything else. Um, But after you've taken this fort, there's going to be livestock. There's going to be provisions. You can have those, Israel, because you're on the move. You're in a military campaign and there's no supply line bringing you food and meals ready to eat and all that stuff that those of you in the military know about. There's none of that. So you're taking as you go, and that's part of the judgment that God had already said against the Canaanites is Israel is going to dispossess them, which means going to come in and take and live in the cities and take the resources that the Canaanite, the particular Canaanites, have left over when they're driven out. And so Joshua, uh, and so God says, set an ambush behind the city. That's how you're going to do it. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. He chose 30 elephants of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You're going to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you be on alert. I and all those with me will advance on the city. And when the men come out against us, as they did before, we will flee from them. They'll pursue us until we've lured them away from the city. For they'll say, they're running away from us just as they did before. Remember, I had just routed Israel in the previous chapter. So when we flee from them, you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. When you've taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord God has commanded. See to it. You have my orders. Then Joshua sent them off and they went to the place of ambush and lay in wait between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night with the people. Early the next morning, Joshua mustered his men. He and the leaders of Israel marched before them to Ai. The entire force was with him, marched up and approached the city and arrived in front of it. They set up camp north of Ai with the valley between them and the city. Joshua had taken about five elephants of men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So the whole army's there, but a few, a, a small group is set to ambush. They had, soldier, uh, they had the soldiers take up their possessions, positions, all those in the camp to the north of the city and the ambush to the west of it. That night Joshua went into the valley. When the king of Ai saw this, he and all the men of the city hurried out early in the morning to meet Israel in battle at a certain place overlooking the Arabah. The Arabah is just the big Great Jordan Valley. It's kind of the flat, it's part of the Great Rift Valley that runs all the way down to Africa. But it's like that flat land between Israel and Jordan. But he did not know that an ambush had been set against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel let themselves be driven back before the Lord, and they fled toward the way of the wilderness. 
It's a, that was an actual road, the way of the wilderness. Uh, NIV just says the desert, but they fled along this actual road. All the men of Ai were called to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were lured away from the city. Not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out toward Ai the scimitar that is in your hand. NIV says javelin, but that's kind of like a spear weapon. This, is the, this word in Hebrew, it's a curved sword. It's a symbolic, it's, it's from a previous era in war, war history. By this point, it had taken on more of a symbolic, uh, kind of like when, when um, Civil War generals or whatever, the curved sword that they would have, you know, like even though they're fighting with guns. They still have, Marines still have swords, right? Right In the Marine uniform, don't they still have a sword? Yeah, yeah, so something like that. Like, this is not just like an attack sword. This is like a military command thing. Um, the Lord said, Joshua, hold out toward I the scimitar in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city. So Joshua held out the scimitar toward I. As soon as he did this, the men in the ambush rose quickly from their position and rushed forward. They entered the city and captured it quickly and set it on fire. The men of I looked back and saw the smoke of the city rising against the sky, but they had no chance to escape in any direction, for the Israelites who had been fleeing toward the desert had turned back against their pursuers. For when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and the smoke was going up from the city, they turned around and struck the men of Ai. The men of ambush also came out of the city against them, so they were caught in the middle with the Israelites on both sides. Israel struck them down, leaving neither survivors nor fugitives, but they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing the men of Ai in the fields and in the desert where they had chased them, when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed all those who were in it. Twelve Eliph men and women fell that day, all the men of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out the scimitar until he had haremed all who lived in Ai. And Ivy says destroyed, but it's that word harem. But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and the plunder of this city as the Lord had instructed them. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He hung the king of Ai on a tree and left him there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take down his carcass from the tree and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate. And they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remain to this day. That's exactly the same phrase in Hebrew that was used last chapter, what happened to Achan. A large pile of rocks raised over him, which remains to this day. <clears throat> so this is now, so I, this garrison has been destroyed. And, and it's at a strategic point in the land because now Israel has control of the heartland of Canaan. And from here they can go north, they can go south. They can, they've kind of pierced into, well, you guys are facing me. They've kind of pierced into the Holy Land, into, at this point it's the unholy land, uh, into Canaanite territory. And now they're going to set out and they can attack south and they can attack north. That's how it's going to be the attack that Israel, the, the driving out of the Canaanites and the eventual spreading out over the coming chapters. But before they do that, now that they've had these two successful battles, Jericho and Ai, both of which the, the garrisons, military garrisons, have been destroyed, the stronghold of these Canaanite entry into the land, gateway uh, portals, 
have been taken over by Israel. Now Israel's going to do what Moses commanded all the way back in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Those of you that remember last year, Deuteronomy 27 28, that we read together. Moses said, hey, once you've gotten into the land, once you've experienced victory, once you've seen how God is fighting for you, remember, Israel is a rabble of slaves that came out of Egypt, a mixed ethnic multitude. Israel, or descendants of Israel and the, the mixed multitude that came up with them and people like Caleb and, and, uh, and at this point people like Rahab and others who have joined with them, is native and foreigners alike, all comp from, comprise Israel as God's covenant people. They were, they were, they're not a fighting force. They're not a mighty army. They've had no military training. And that's part of what's going on in Joshua is under Joshua's leadership, God is empowering Israel to do the unthinkable. So leaving aside questions that we have when we read this about like the ethics of warfare or how could God command killing or whatever, whatever. If you're reading this just from a purely ancient military account, it's, it's unbelievable. This, this group of people who have no military training. They don't even really have any weapons. We're going to read later, by the time of Samuel and uh, King Saul, nobody has a sword. I mean, that's one of the things that makes somebody unique at that time is they have their own sword. And so it's, it's, everything about it is miraculous, even though it's involving both divine and human foresight in carrying out these attacks. But now, after these two victories... They are going to do what Moses has commanded, which is renew the covenant. Renew the covenant. Do not think these victories are because you're anything special. Don't think these victories are because Joshua is a good military leader. I mean, he is, but that's not why they're winning. Don't think these victories are because God is always on your side. Right? We find that out with Achan and his whole episode. It's all about the covenant. And so now, in verse 30, we read about what happens, this covenant, their identity. The covenant is who Israel is. It says, Then Joshua built on Mount Abal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. And this is Deuteronomy 27. You can go back and read it. He built it according to what's written in the book of the Law of Moses an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings, that's from Leviticus 1, and sacrificed fellowship offerings, that's Leviticus 3 and 5. There, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua copied on stones the law of Moses which he had written. So Joshua now, on the stones on the mountain, makes a copy. Not chiseled, most likely plastered, and then written on. That's how you would write on stones, is you put a whitewash plaster and then you could write on it um, much faster than trying to chisel out this whole book of the covenant. So Joshua does this as they celebrate. Remember, the whole burnt offering was the first offering. That was everything dedicated to God. That was the first fruits. That was, hey God, you get all of this offering and the whole animal was burned up. And then the peace offering or the fellowship offering was the offering that you shared together as a meal, thanking, being thankful in God's presence and having fellowship with one another because you have fellowship with God because you have offered your offering. So it was a Thanksgiving type deal. No pilgrims or turkeys, but generally a Thanksgiving type situation. What's going on here? And so they're thankful now that they're in the land. 
But here's the interesting point for me, at least. Verse 33. All Israel, aliens and citizens alike, with their elders, officials, and judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing those who carried it, the priests, who were Levites. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim, the other half of them in front of Mount Abel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formally commanded them when he gave them instructions to bless the people of Israel. Again, Deuteronomy 27 and 28. I love that phrase. All Israel, comma, aliens and citizens alike. This is one of these little hints. I point these out, and I've been doing it for six years as we've gone through Torah, because I want to show you and I want to pound it into your heads collectively that even in the Old Testament, Israel included Gentiles. It's not a New Testament concept. What was new in the New Testament is that the Gentiles who were included did not have to keep the Mosaic Torah law. That was the new thing. But even in the Old Testament, Gentiles entered into the people of Israel and they entered into the covenant relationship with God. That's what gets lost in a lot of discussions among Christians in churches and, and just in our own thinking of Old Testament Israel, New Testament Gentiles uh, finally can become God's... No, 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 no. Even in the Old Testament, Israel always consisted of Jew and Gentile together in covenant. That was the key. It wasn't your bloodline. It was your covenant obedience. That's why Jesus could say, and John the Baptist and others could say, hey, God can raise up children of Abraham from these rocks if He wants to. It's faith that determines. It's covenant faith that determines covenant membership. There's no clearer example than the book of Joshua, which begins with story about a pagan Gentile prostitute woman who becomes into the royal line of King David himself. And then juxtaposed in the very next chapter, a man of the tribe of Judah, an Israelite of Israelites, who he and his family are cut off from Israel because of their covenant disobedience. You can't have a stronger uh, um, illustration of this concept than that. That in membership in Israel has always been and will always be based on covenant faith, not who your parents were or what your DNA is. And so I just, I love the, the, the Old Testament is full of these. Full of these examples. And it'll come to fruition in an amazing passage in Isaiah 19 that actually talks about Israel one day being a third among God's people and Assyria and Egypt being His people along with them. It, read Isaiah 19. It'll blow your mind. you never hear it preached in a church. At least I've never heard it preached. Except for in Egypt. I've heard it. <laughs> Egyptian Christians are like, yeah, we love that verse. Um, but it's, there's, there's, it's not a New Testament concept that Gentiles come into the people of God. As far back as the very beginning, alien and citizen alike are part of Israel. And so that's why God cares so much. That's why there's so much legislation in the Torah. And we've seen it in Exodus three years ago, four years ago when we were in Exodus. We saw it in Leviticus. We saw it in Deuteronomy. How much legislation there was against caring for the alien in your midst. The sojourner, the, however it was translated, the ger, the, 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 the person who's not one of y'all, caring for them and treating them as if they are one of y'all. It's something that's massively close to God's heart. And it goes all the way back to his old covenant people in what is considered the most nationalistic of all the books in the Old Testament. That's another great irony of Joshua. So, after they all gather, 
afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law. The blessings and the curses. That's specifically Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Just as it is written in the book of the law, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and the children and the aliens who lived among them. So usually you would expect in an official covenant ratification ceremony, read it and all of the men would agree. But not in Israel. All of the men and the women and the children and the aliens among them, all of them were included in the covenant because the covenant went down every strata of society. It wasn't just for landowning males. It was for everyone. This, this is the identity of God's people. And it's the covenant identity. And this is the reason that Israel will have the success that they had at Ai when they go and they attack other places that should be military strongholds. Places like Hatzor and other places in the north that they're going to attack. Places in the south they're going to attack. They have to drive out the Canaanites. They have to drive out the fearsome Canaanites. Remember, when the spies went into this land 40 years before this, 10, 12 spies went into the land. 10 of them came back and said, there's no way we can take these people. There's no way we can drive these people out. They're giants. We're like grasshoppers before them. So when you think of the Canaanites, it's not like Israel's fighting these helpless little people routing village after village after village. They are attacking garrisons of mighty, fighting, massive, technologically superior Canaanites. And the only way they're going to have victory is if they follow Joshua. And the only way Joshua is going to be able to give them victory is if Joshua keeps them in covenant with God. And that's exactly what he does here at this critical moment in their history. Joshua, or or re, what's the word? Not reinstates, renews, ratifies, re-ratifies for this generation the covenant. Points forward thousands of years after this, the new Joshua, the new Yeshua, before he sends his people out to drive out the darkness in the land will ratify, will we'll, we'll inaugurate the new covenant and give them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Joshua 1.0 is what we're reading. But we're reading it looking back through the lens of Joshua 2.0, which is who we follow today. So we see the principles that are, uh, God is at work we see the principles God's doing in the earthly realm during this time period are going to symbolize or have a lot of um, the, 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 the goal will be the same in many ways as in the new covenant. But what's going to happen is it's going to move from an earthly thing or, or, or a, a land-based thing to a cosmic thing. And that's the whole covenant old covenant new covenant thing but we're still in the old covenant so that's where we are next week we're going to read a fascinating story joshua is actually going to get hoodwinked he's going to get tricked and instead of getting angry he's going to realize he got tricked and then he's going to stay to his word and we're going to read another account of people who should have been wiped out if we were taking everything literally actually being allowed and welcomed in to israel based on, like Rahab, their recognition of Israel's God as being the one true God who's in control. 
So come back next week for that. We've got some leftover uh, food here, some desserts. Grab some if you want. Keep telling your friends. Let's keep growing this Bible study, and we will see you next week.